what is it that most fascinates you specifically about Shia Islam or Shia Islam? Oh, oh without doubt, it is Karbala. That, that is not even an issue for me. And, and when I say Karbala, I also mean the various characters and personalities who populate that historical moment. Um, so, so besides Al Hussein and that faithful remnant, also his sister Lady Zainab, the the extraordinary Abbas, um, who we could perhaps talk about a little later because he's very interesting, um, Zain al Abidin. So there are all of these extraordinary people who populate the moment of Karbala, and and also people a little further out from the battle. Um, for example, Umm Salama, who had great love for Al Hussein and grieved over him, maybe was the first person to grieve over him in, in Medina. So, so I heard the Karbala story years ago, um, told to me by a, a British um, lecturer here who is now a cardinal, Michael Fitzgerald, and who has worked a great deal in Shi'i Catholic relations. And he's now, oh, I think close to 90, or I hope he's not watching because he might be younger than 90. But anyway, he's heading to 90, lives in, in somewhere in north of England. Uh, and, and he was my lecturer in Shi'i Islam. And the moment I heard the Karbala story, I was utterly transfixed, partly because there are so many parallels to the Jesus story, but also because it is, it is a horrendous story. It is exceptionally difficult for us in the 21st century to imagine the horror of Karbala, the physical horror that was experienced, for example, by the women and the children who saw each of their male men, men, men folk murdered one by one, because that's how it happened. It was literally one by one. So the psychological horror, but also the, the religious horror that the, the prophet's grandson should be murdered. That is the the son of Fatima. That is an extraordinary thing. So, so these, these are the elements that captured me. And I set about studying Al Hussein with the thought of writing a doctorate about him. And then, of course, I discovered Lady Fatima. And she pulled my attention away for a substantial amount of time because, well, because she plays obviously a role in his life that, that one, one simply cannot not talk about. But Karbala. And, and, and the events around Karbala, that has become my, my life study. And everything that I've written and I'm writing at the moment and intend to write is about that period of Shia history because it is a fundamental catalyst that really changes the world. It changes everything, Karbala. And, you know, in introduce us to your two books that you've written and possibly tell us what you're working on now. So the, the first book that I wrote on Lady Fatima was my doctoral thesis. And um, I like to think that at least when I published it, which was back in the early 2000s, I like to think that it was at that time at least the first substantial academic biography on Lady Fatima based purely on Arabic primary sources, but in English, so that the English-speaking world could be introduced to this personality. And I subsequently... Uh, published a second edition because my Arabic has improved since then a little. And I, I, I questioned some of my own translations because I always insisted on translating the, the hadith myself rather than just taking for granted what other people. And so I, I re-looked at some of my translations and changed some of them. Um, and, then, and then a few years ago, a group of us in this college, all of us priests, all of us with PhDs in Islamics, we were sitting around a table 
complaining about the Muslim scholars, saying the Muslim scholars don't write about the woman. Why do they never write about the woman? Khadija, for example, Lady Khadija has never had a biography of her. And we all agreed, I thought they were being serious, they were joking, but we all agreed to take one figure. And I said, I'm going to write about Zainab because, because having written about Fatima, it is the natural progression of a daughter who imitates her mother in so many ways. So I produced the book and then discovered that the others hadn't been serious, they hadn't done anything at all. So I was the only one about, about the book. And I, this sounds terribly arrogant and I, I hesitate to say it, but yesterday I discovered that the book on, on Zainab has been named as uh, among the hundred most important books ever written on Islamic history by a, a, an American group. And I discovered this yesterday. I'm at number 44, apparently, Lady Zainab, which delights me. Um, at this moment, I'm publishing a third book, um, which I hope will come out end of January, beginning of February, on the predictive dreams of Karbala. That is the dreams of uh, the prophet when Jibril mm -hmm. came to him, either in dream or in some sort of vision form, mm -hmm. most often in the, the house of Um Salama. But mm -hmm. then a number of other dreams, dreams of Lady Fatima, dreams of Hussein, uh, dreams of a variety of people, even, uh, 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 such as Abbas, who claimed to actually have seen Jibril. So I've produced a volume on all of these dreams before, during, and after Karbala. Um, and and uh, I, I'm happy about this work. I've enjoyed writing it. It's been a very moving work. Um, and my last project, because I'm getting old now, is, is I'm determined to produce some form of biography of Abbas. How, I don't know, because as you well know better than I do, the sources are very few. Hardly any sources. I've worked my way through books and books of Shi Hadith, and there's very, very little about Abbas. Those, those moments of greatness, for example, fetching water at the Battle of Karbala, those are there. And, and, and the story is told differently by a variety of Shi transmitters. So I'm hoping to produce what I'm calling a fragmentary biography, a little monogram, um, again, to introduce this extraordinary human being to the English-speaking world. So, and then after that, I will be tired and I think I will put my feet up for, for a while. <laughs> Hopefully you will continue to do so. Uh, once anybody such as yourself uh, or any scholar uh, is motivated and fascinated by what they study, uh, then nothing really fatigues them. There are so many stories. And since you're a seminarian, uh, I'd like to share a couple of them uh, with you and our audience. One of, uh, one of the grand uh, scholars of, uh, contemporary scholars, he's passed away now, Sayyid Mar'ashi Najafi, who has the, li the, the very famous library in the holy city of Qom. They say that until the moments he died, he had a bowl in his uh, personal room where he actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, welcomed delegations and groups and individuals. Uh, and obviously, as he became... Uh, he had, as he became more powerful and he, he, he became more popular and he had a bigger following, the number of people who would visit him uh, obviously became larger and larger. Um, but as his, uh, as his room maybe grew larger or as his facilities uh, uh, grew uh, bigger with, uh, with uh, more individuals visiting him, it seemed that this bowl is going around uh, I've never seen it, uh, but individual scholars who had visited him many times say that this bowl was just sitting there and it's an it's a old, dirty bowl. 
so one day a person asks him and he says to him, what's this bowl that we see everywhere uh, for the past many years since you've become uh, a marja and since you continue to grow and, and, and become more powerful, we see this bowl going around. And he says this bowl is to actually remind me of what happened and, and my process to, that got me to this point. Basically, he entered uh, the city of Qom as an impoverished person, as somebody who didn't even have the ability to, uh, to buy food. So he actually had a bowl. Uh, at night, he would go into uh, the, 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 the rich neighborhoods, uh, streets of the holy city of Qom, and he would dig in their trash, and he would find... Uh, you know, the leftovers that they had thrown out. And believe me, this is so difficult for anybody to even, uh, to even uh, fathom uh, the extent of what people are willing to do to seek knowledge. Uh, and he said he would go home, he would obviously put, put some water, boil that, uh, whatever he had gotten. Uh, he would boil it, uh, uh, clean it, and then he would eat it just because he wanted to survive from hunger and he would actually use the money that he got uh, every month from the seminary to buy books. Uh, so he took this bowl with him uh, everywhere until he died, reminding himself, um, you know, what it took for him to, to be sitting there. And, and possibly for him, it was a mystic type of remembrance that, you know, this is who you were. Don't let all this crowd and all this fame uh, make you forget who you were and where you came from. But I think it's a bigger reminder for us. And I'm sure he had that in his vision that if I could do it, if I could go through all of this uh, to, to get knowledge, to teach, then I'm sure you, the rest of you can all survive and continue to do so. Similarly, uh, you know, another scholar, I remember he had passed away when I actually went to Qom and, uh, and I was actually fascinated by the way he was teaching. So his CDs were available. Uh, and uh, I, I, I studied one of the, uh, one of the books on Usul al-Fiqh with him through the CD. And uh, I remember in the 12th, 13th session, uh, this teacher just goes to his students that, you know, some of you are getting here late. Some of you are not attending every day. Uh, and it's a shame. It's a shame. You guys should attend on time, come on time, make sure that you ask questions, make sure. He basically had the text memorized. They say that he wouldn't even need to use a book to teach this class. And there he said this story that I, I literally had to pause. I, I literally had to pause the lesson and I, I was in tears. Um, he said that when he actually went from Afghanistan to, uh, to Nejaf, uh, they wouldn't give any uh, uh, any dorms to a poor, impoverished Afghani kid. And uh, he said, I had to actually sleep in the cemetery. Uh, you know, the largest cemetery in the world is sitting in the city of Najaf, uh, Wadi Salam. And uh, he said, you know, I basically had to take refuge to the, to the graveyard. He said, I slept there for several nights, uh, Again, what people are willing to do to seek knowledge. And this guy came all the way from Afghanistan to there. And uh, 
He said, one day I woke up and obviously Nejef is very hot, very hot. He said it was summer and I was very thirsty. I woke up very thirsty. I was walking towards the shrine of Imam Ali and I saw uh, water. I saw water just flowing right in front of me. I was so thirsty. So I put my hand under the water and it was pretty clean. It was actually cold. And he said, I just drank and drank and drank. And then I just continued to walk towards the shrine. Uh, he said, I traced the water and I, I, it took me to a small room. I said, I went to a small room and I saw that this water was actually being poured on a dead body while it was being washed. He said, I looked at the dome of Imam Ali. I cried and I said, until now, I've just heard, I've just read in books that you hear and you see and, and you're you're, you honor your guests and you're gracious and you're, you're generous. But that's all of the books. I just drank water off a dead body. Is this how you treat your, your guest? And he said, I was very upset. I was very, I didn't even know what I was saying. He said, if I go back and if I was completely sane, I would never say this. But he said, I was moved. I was shocked. So he said, I continued to go inside the shrine and I was crying and I was upset. Obviously, there was discrimination. They wouldn't give him a dorm just because he was poor, just because he was, you know, from Afghanistan, maybe because he was an Arab. I don't know. He said, I went there and it just happened that said Abu Hassan al-Asfahani, who was the grand marja, and he was known for his generosity and mysticism, entered the shrine in the same time that I was entering. He said he entered and I was just this Afghani kid, this poor, impoverished Afghani kid. And he said, he looked at me and he said, you come to my office after the visitation. He said, I never knew what happened, but I went to him and he gave me a salary that was equivalent to a professor at the, at the seminary. And I was happy and I was pleased. One, what do you think led to the demise of Fatima to Zahra? Why is it that her grave is unknown? Um, and, um, and kind of tell us, what you thought went wrong after the demise, or maybe even before the demise of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, and until the moment that she died. The second question that I wanted to ask you prior, but I, I think it's more appropriate for me to ask you now, uh, is that what do you think, as a person who studied the life of Zainab, who studied the life of Hussein, and now wants to study the life of Abbas, I'm sure you've thought about this very well, what do you think led to the massacre of Karbala amongst the Muslims? You know, it's not every day that you hear a community attacked, the grandson of the prophet beheads him, kills him, takes his woman as captives, takes his head around from city to city and, and parades his family. Is there a correlation between the two events? So I'd like for you to, to kind of shed light from your perspective on those matters. 